Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing in our look at Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 4 continues in this long part of the letter where Paul is kind of saying, hey, here's what the Christian life ought to look like. We've already laid down the foundations in the first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, about what it looks like to what a Christian is. In other words, like who this person is by nature of their union, we said, with Jesus. And now we're going to take a look at what a Christian ought to look like. So we're in the midst of that. And so Ephesians chapter 4 kind of picks that up. I've titled tonight's sermon, Christian Change. Christian Change. Why? Just very simply, Paul believes that when a dead heart is made new and alive, that that person really is different than the man or the woman they were while they were dead. Does that make sense? So we're going to look tonight at Christian change. That's what we're going to look about. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and all the way through the chapter. So here we go. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. This is God's Word. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Let's pray and ask that He would free us to take refuge in Him in these next moments. God, thank You for this night. We ask that You would be with us, both body and soul. Some of us are tired of body. We're sleepy. We're worn out. Spring break was, was, neat, was not a break. And so we need You just to be sustained. Others of us, Lord, come weary of heart, weary of soul, and we need You So we ask that you would be our refuge and be our strength in these next moments. Open our eyes and our ears that we might hear the good news 
that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost and to change those lost ones as well, to make them look more like Himself. We pray that You would do that even now as we listen to Your Word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, Laura has been preggers. And so, in light of that, um, we have watched a lot of television (laughs) and movies. And one of my favorites that we got to watch uh, was that we got to see, um, it's not going to be up on here, i got to flip it here in just a second, but um, we're going to be watching a clip from one of my favorite movies, Les Mis. I'm sure some of you have probably seen it. It is, like, amazing if you've never seen it. You need to spend the two hours and rent it if you've never read the book, which if you have, you're my hero. Uh, But if you've never seen the movie, it's worth seeing. I want to set this clip up for you because it has a lot to do with what we're talking about tonight. We're going to see in it a man named Jean Valjean. And Valjean has recently been released from prison. He finds himself tonight in the home of the local bishop of the town. He has eaten with him and the bishop's assistant. And it's now the middle of the night. Valjean was put in in chains in this work camp and has... Uh, served, I think it was 19 years, for stealing a piece of bread. And so here is this newly freed convict. He is in the home of the bishop. It's at night, and that's what we're going to watch. So I'm going to get this set up. Can you go ahead and get the uh, lights there um, for me, Kyler? One of the uh, more powerful scenes I've I've seen in recent years because of how powerful um, the imagery is You saw the bishop say what he did. He took the mask, the hood off. He said, Jean Valjean, I've ransomed you. You've promised to be a new man. I just share this clip with you because if you know the rest of the story, you know that Valjean is, in fact, a changed man. He's no longer like who he once was. And I want to... tell you that the reason I share that with you is because that is illustrating what Paul is getting at right here in this text. And that is that when you become a Christian, you really are a changed person on the inside, whether you feel like it or not. And that because you've been changed on the inside, so to speak, that you have been given a new heart that you have been ransomed, that because of that, your life will invariably, do you know what I mean by that word, invariably? It will happen. It invariably will look different. And so Paul can talk about Christian change. The text is going to show us three things. First, that change can happen. Secondly, why change happens. And then thirdly, we want to take a look at what Christian change actually looks like. Okay? So that's where we're going. We're going to try to keep it brief tonight, but I want you to take a look at it. First of all, that change can happen. First of all, look right there in that text. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. What is Paul saying? He is saying that 
this over here, these Gentiles, so to speak, were they live like this. This is the way they think. This is the way they live their lives. And he goes on and he says, I don't want you to live like them anymore. All I'm trying to highlight is, is that there is a group that Paul begins to say, they, okay, they, they, there, they, and you are over here. So Paul has made a distinction. Do you get that, y'all? You see what I'm saying? Like he's making a distinction and he's saying, them over there, I don't want you to be like that anymore. We're going to look at why in just a minute. All I'm trying to say is, is that in Paul's mind, he understands that there is something different now, something radically different about what happened to them in Christ. So what was it over here in particular then that, that, that he is saying that you no longer must walk like? Well, look with me. Two things in particular. He says first, let's look at the idea of this hardness of heart. Paul says that we were ignorant and when he uses this word, he doesn't mean it pejoratively or hurtfully. Rather, rather, he means it that you were without knowledge. Paul is saying that we did not know God, and the reason for this was due to our what? Hard hearts, is what he says. We were stubborn. We didn't want to bend our wills, our emotions, and our intellects. Instead, we were, secondly, as Paul puts it, callous. That that's the way our lives begin to flesh themselves out. And do you know what that word means really count? It doesn't mean the stuff you get on your hands or on the pads of your feet. It doesn't mean callous like that. The best word for it is this. That they've lost the ability to blush. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Lost the ability to blush. They weren't able to be shamed anymore. Some of y'all know what that's like. You're sitting here in this room right now and you know that deep in your heart you have lost the ability to blush. That the things that you once said you would never be, that you would never do, that you would never act and behave like, those things that would have caused you great shame and, bl and blushing years ago, you now stand right there in the midst of them. And all ability and capacity to have any sort of shame or blushing about it, that's your heart. And you don't have to look past last week to figure that out about your life. Paul is saying that that is what you once were. Calloused because you were hard-hearted. Listen to what one writer writes, puts it. This guy named John Stott who passed away about a year ago. Thus, hardness of heart leads first to darkness of mind, then to deadness of soul. I love that phrase. Under the judgment of God, and finally, to recklessness of life. Having lost all sensitivity, people finally lose all self-control. And Paul says, ready for this? Good news. That's what you were. Were were not anymore. Think about it like this. I know I've used this illustration time and again, but I can't help not use it again. It is um, from the story 
by C.S. Lewis called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it's the story of, a, of one of this, of a cousin named Eustace. He's a cousin to the Pevensey of the Pevensey bro- brothers and sisters. And they hate him. He's that like cousin that you always hate. He's always mean. He's always spitting in their pudding. I think that's what British people eat. The point is, is that he's always mean and cruel to the kids. And they're off on this journey. And he sees, he comes around the corner and he sees this major treasure. And he doesn't know though it's a dragon's treasure. And he doesn't know even more that once you begin to love this treasure, you begin, your heart begins to become like the treasure itself. You become dragonish. So one morning after sleeping on the treasure, he wakes up and he finds that he has been turned into a dragon. And so he says, oh mercy, I must get all this dragon skin off of me. And so he begins peeling off the dragon skin. And with each layer that he takes off, he looks down at his skin and it's still there. And so he begins to panic. Because he knows all of this hard work can't change him. And then he comes face to face with the lion. Aslan. With sharp claws. And listen to how Lewis writes this children's story. This is Eustace speaking. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only the A hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And Lewis offers commentary. It would be nice and fairly true to say, From that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of them I shall not notice. In the most beautiful words from the chapter, the cure had begun. Why do I share this story with you? One, Eustace was a boy and not a dragon anymore because of the work of Aslan, the Christ character in these stories. But secondly, did you notice what Lewis said? The change had begun. Some of y'all look at your life and you say, I'm a Christian, or at least I think I am, but why in the world does that not reflect itself out in my life? Right? I mean... If you're like me, you got to be like that because you're a jerk to people. Or you drink too much. Or you sleep around. Or whatever it is, right? 
And I'm saying that the cure, perhaps for some of you, has begun. And that God is in process with you. For others of you, you think that you're a Christian, and I'm here to tell you you're not. I can't tell you that each individual you are you aren't. That's not my point. I'm saying that you are in danger of proving that because of your life. But here's what I am trying to say. I am trying to say that for some of all, you are so discouraged because of some sin in your life and you wonder how you're going to change. And here's how it happens. Ready? You quit looking at yourself. You have to take your eyes and look at Jesus. Because every time you fail, you're going, oh man, I'm not who I want. You're like, oh, this isn't happening. What's going on with me? And I'm saying, y'all, quit looking at yourself. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. Listen to what he has to say. For every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus or the cross. That's what you need to do for your souls. It's killing the change has happened. It has begun. Why? Second point. Has it happened? Paul says very simply, the reason it has happened is because, whoops, he, it has happened because of what the new clothes, as it were, that you wear. Notice with me, he says right there, he says that you had put off and that you had put on. I want you to think about this. That you, when you became a Christian, you put on Christ. That's the way the Bible speaks about it. I mean, I didn't put anybody on. No, that's not what the Bible speaks about you becoming a Christian in like wardrobe language. Okay? So it's you put off something and you put something else on because your identity has changed. Sports fans out there. Peyton Manning just went from the Indianapolis Colts to play quarterback, and now he's at the Denver Broncos to play. So he took off his Colts jersey and left it behind. Now he puts on his Broncos and he's a Bronco now. All the things that made him Colt-ish, he's done away with them now. And everything that makes him a Bronco, he now has. He plays in Mile High Stadium. He, you know, he wears the orange and blue. He's in a legacy with John Elway now. All of those things are true about him whether he likes it or not, and he hasn't played game one yet. But he is a Bronco. What Paul is saying is, is that when you became a Christian, metaphorically, you took off, you took off your old nature. It's done away with. And you now have been clothed with a new nature. That is what is true about you. Now wait a second, you're saying, hold up a second here, Ryan. Because I... I thought I didn't do anything to earn my salvation. And it sounds like what you're talking about, that's what's going on. Because it sounds like I'm the one that's putting on the clothes and that it's not Jesus doing it. The Bible speaks about it both ways. God is always working, but there is always a response in our hearts that we, that we take on, so to speak. Listen to what the same writer, John Stott, puts um, the way he says it. Uh, sorry, this is another guy. This is another guy named um, Peter O'Brien. He says, learning Christ, which is what he's talking about right there when he says it's not the way you learned Christ, means welcoming Him as a living person and being shaped by Him and by His teaching. This involves submitting to His rule of righteousness. 
and responding to His summons, putting on to standards and values completely different than what we have known. I'll hammer it home one last time with this. I don't know what your high school mascot was anymore, but when you got here, you put on the purple and the white. And you were given a little horned frog, and now you're a horned frog. You're not a lobster or a, you know, whatever you were, okay? I don't know how many of y'all were lobsters. If you're lobsters, you must be from Maine or something. But do you see what I'm getting at? So listen to what Stott has to say. And I'm going to say this, and then we're going to, be, we're going to move on. Nobody has ever given birth to himself. The very concept is ridiculous. No, the new humanity we assume is God's creation, not ours. Nevertheless, when God recreates us in Christ according to His own likeness, we entirely concur with what He has done. We put off our old life and we put on the new life that He has created, embracing it and welcoming it with joy. In a word, recreation, what God does, and repentance, what we do by His grace, belong together and cannot be separated. Why has the change happened? Because if you're in Jesus, you've put on a new self, a new nature. You've got a new jersey and your old one that's filthy and smells like poo and is nasty is done away with. It's gone forever. In fact, the one who wears it now is a man named Jesus. That's who wears it. Because you're wearing His jersey. Wardrobe language. Trying to make it as simple as I can. New self. That's what you've put on. What does Christian change look like? Paul speaks about five things here. So we're going to run through them quickly. But I want you to know that these are the ways that you can begin to tell if this change has happened in your life. This is how you know. Okay? Let's take a look. First of all, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see it right there in verse 25. So what I'm going to say is this. Falsehood is changed to truth-telling. Literally, it just means the word there is lies. That's what it means. And it has to do with your mouth and what you say. Now, each one of these five things is going to expose something about you if you continue in it. Ready? So here's the first thing that it exposes. It exp- if you continue to live your life like this, ask people around you that this will expose your desire to the, for your need of human approval. Hear me out. You're going, what? How, how can you get from there to there? Here's how we get there. Why you would lie and your need for human approval. And Jesus' isn't enough for you. You make up some story in the presence of another person or you cover up a mistake with a lie. Okay, so I, Rachel asked me to do something. I didn't did it, do it. And I say, oh yeah, I did that. Uh, you know, I was just about to get around to that. That's really, what's going on? I'm too afraid of her opinion of me. Do you see that? Like the reason I'm lying is because I'm afraid if she gets, if I tell her the truth, she's going to get mad at me and cast me out or something like that. But y'all, do you see that if you're in Jesus, you've got all the approval in the world that you're ever going to need? You see? 
So that's why it frees you from feeling like you got to tell lies and you can start telling the truth. Okay, that's just one way it fleshes itself out. Secondly, anger to trust. Look at it right there. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun now go down on your anger. Now, you know what's cool about the Gospel? I love this. Like, you can be a Christian and be angry. You know why? You can be angry at the sin in this world, the brokenness of it. I'm ticked at our, the situation right now with our kids. And some of y'all have gone through all sorts of pain and it's right for you to be angry at it. And you need to start being angry at it. You're the personality that everything just goes okay with you in the world. You've suffered some form of abuse in your life and you're just saying, oh, it's no big deal, NBD. That's hogwash, y'all. You have a right to be angry about this stuff. And Jesus is saying you can. But He's saying in your anger, do not sin. Listen to this. I'm not talking about righteous anger. I'm talking about that when somebody cuts you off in the street or whatever, you get all ticked. And here's what's happening. Do you know what anger is in that sense? Anger is your heart welling up, getting all puffed up, because something you love is threatened. You can write that down if you want. When you get angry, something you love is being threatened. And the thing is, is that it's going to reveal in your heart what you really love. It's going to expose it. Every single time, that's what's going to happen. Oh my gosh, that professor would not give me a B, even though I deserved a D. I'm so ticked. The reason you're so ticked is because you're about to lose that B. And you love that B more than you love Jesus. I'm just saying, it's okay. The world's going to keep going if you get that D. And your mom and dad are going to be mad at you. And you might have some explaining to do, but you might have deserved that D because you didn't study all semester. You see what I'm saying? The point is, is this. The world's going to go on. If you're still angry, if you struggle with anger, if you're like me and you struggle with anger, this is a good word. I need to know that I can let go of some of that anger. Thirdly, Thievery turns into blessing. I'm going to move quickly. And that's basically this. Look, y'all, you qu- people quit stealing. You, quit, you, quit, um, you use what God has given you. You learn contentment. It exposes your lack of contentment, Paul would say. Fourthly, how you say it. Harmful words are turned into helpful ones. How do you use your words? Literally, the word there is rotten. It means that it's dying and decaying inside. And I'm going to tell you this, if you're somebody who loves to use sarcasm all the time, this text right here has a lot to say to you. Because it's saying you're hurting people with your words. If all you do is speak sarcastically, two things are true about you. Either you really mean it when you say it to somebody. Does that make sense? Either you really do mean it, or you're a radically insecure person, so you have to put somebody else down. That's what sarcasm means. Be careful. I'm very sarcastic. And 90% of the time, it's because I'm deeply insecure. And so I have to make myself feel better by putting somebody else down. Be careful about it. Lastly, um, forgiving one another. Listen, I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy, but I can tell you this. that Over time, if you're a person that cannot forgive people, what this is exposing is this is that you think that your sin really isn't that big of a deal. And you go, what, Ron, you're flipping... Here's what I'm saying is, the freedom that comes 
from being able to forgive another person is rooted squarely in God's forgiveness of you. And if you don't believe that God has forgiven you, you think that your sin is not that big of a deal or it's insurmountable. You see what I'm saying? It's all connected at the level of the heart. So, I want to close with this. One of my friends, Les, who's going to be speaking at this conference, tells the story of a guy named Augustine of Hippo. In 386, Augustine was like what we would call a player. Okay? All he was about was women. That's what he loved for the first 15 or 20 years of his life. Prostitutes, and that's how he rolled. Okay? Later in his life, he got converted. And as he's walking through the streets, he passes one of his ex-prostitutes. And she stands up. And she goes, Augustine, it's I. And you know what Augustine says? Yes. But it is not I. It is not I. He's saying that something had happened in his life. He was actually a new man. That he was actually changed. Paul would use the language of being changed. And that's what's going on here. Listen, I want to sum it up with this one statement. For change to happen in your life, you're going to have to die to yourself. And the only way that you're ever going to be able to die to yourself is for you to see that Jesus died for you. That Jesus first died for you. That's the only way it's going to happen. And y'all, I'm telling you, that's the best news you're going to hear tonight. That if you're in Christ, Jesus really has died for you. You're free. You're a new person. So why would you want to continue to live out what your old nature was? I mean, give me the rationale for that. It seems silly. So we begin to embrace this change. We begin to live our lives differently. That's where we want to end tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you for this night. Thank you for the patience of these students and me having gone over. And we ask, O Lord, that you would bless us now as we close in song. Amen.